Good morning, Westmount, and I encourage you now to take your Bible as we continue in worship, now with attention given to the Word of God, as we look to see it and study it and understand it, apply it. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 39. If you're visiting with us, I add another welcome to you this morning. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, just look right in front of you. You'll see one right in the rack. Grab that. Follow along. Second book, 39th chapter is where we pick up. Exodus 39. We arrive this morning, of course, at the completion, the completion of the tabernacle. Materials have been contributed. Pieces have been constructed. Priests now have their clothing All of that to say the Lord's creation is now complete. Yet this tabernacle creation, this earthly dwelling place for God with man, is not the Lord's first creation, is it? This is not the first tabernacle. As our time with this dwelling place of God with man, this tabernacle version As it draws to a close, we remind ourselves of where we started back in chapter 25 when we looked at tabernacle in our Exodus study for the first time. In the very beginning, we reached back as we opened this portion. Remember, we reached back to the very, very beginning, the first creation, the garden and the Lord's creation. That original dwelling place of God with man. That account, remember we read it this morning, six days of creation, one day of rest. Remember that first place of God's presence. And here it is, where heaven and earth met. That first place where heaven and earth met. God created the heavens and the earth, and they were joined at the garden God and man together there. There God created, God saw, and God declared. Again this morning we saw, behold, it was very good. And that was the capstone pronouncement from God after surveying his creation. That affirmation possible because the Lord himself had made it precisely. And that affirmation necessary before the Lord himself indwelled it. The Lord, as we gather from Genesis 1, not indwelling, not indwelling that which is not good. The Lord not indwelling something that wouldn't be according to his plan, nor would he be indwelling not of his creative power. That's not the work of the Lord. No, the inspection of the Lord's creation, again as we saw there in Genesis 1, passed the test because it was the Lord's. That's it. And so what was true of that first tabernacle is also true of this one in Exodus. And that is what we'll see today as this account comes to a climax. The Lord's creation inspected and installed as it was in the garden, so it is in the wilderness. Let's begin our time here by reading of the inspection, verse 32. Look at it with me. We'll start in chapter 39, pick up in verse 32. Thus, 
all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with lamps set and all its utensils and oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. Our Father in heaven, Lord, as we approach this text, Lord, as we approach the end of our study in Exodus, Lord, I pray that we would have fresh eyes to see. As much as we've seen these instructions again and again, Lord, let our hearts be attentive this morning to see what maybe we have not thus far to understand and receive, and of course, by your grace, to live such truths. Lord, that's our prayer this morning. Set our hearts, Lord, tune them to you, we pray. Amen. Good verse 43. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. Look there, that post-construction survey by Moses. Do you see it? It echoes that of the first creation. The tabernacle, the creation brought to Moses. He saw it and what? And blessed them. So with that, let's just jump right into this and consider the inspection. That's our first point this morning. The inspection that is recorded here from verse 32 to 43 as we just read. And as you look in, take in that last section of chapter 39, we need to know as we begin this morning that this last section is noteworthy actually for a number of reasons. Number one, this is, as you look at those verses, just taking them all in in a glance, this is the most comprehensive list of the various tabernacle elements that we've seen yet. Maybe you felt that, all one sentence there, outlining all the pieces of the tabernacle elements. From verse 33, look at it, right through to 41, is a thorough inventory of all that has been just made. We've covered, of course, other summative lists through our study, chapter 25, chapter 35, to name a couple. But this inspection list covers everything. Everything, every piece of tabernacle, every piece of garb is right here. Such detail not only confirms completion then, but here it is, completeness. That's what we see here, completeness. Secondly, this inspection list confirms 
that the work, when we think about completeness, is not just complete, but it is finished. And you say, what is the difference? Look with me, not only past tense, but look at verse 32. The tent of meeting was finished. Verse 42, the people had done all the work. This is the end of the work, not just completely done, but done. No detail, no piece or element is missing. There's nothing left to be constructed or done here from the preceding verses. Beloved, it's all here now. There's nothing left to contribute. There's nothing left to construct. All the work, note this, this is so important, is finished. And what we need to hold on to now for next week is what happens when the work is finished. Thirdly, this inspection is bookended with a very familiar refrain. Look at verse 32. The people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. In verse 43, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. We have commented at length on this aspect of fulfillment. So it is not new here, but we do need to see it because it appears again and again. That said, though, we should recognize the intentional framing, and we call it the bookends, the framing of this inventory list here. Very intentional. Thus, this inventory serves to punctuate, that's it, punctuate the fulfillment that you're seeing here of the Lord's creation. It's emphasis to say, as the Lord commanded it, so it is, in the beginning, in the end. Fourthly, notice that all the pieces of the tabernacle, look at verse 33, were brought to Moses. Do you see that? They were brought to Moses. The tabernacle, remember, was not designed to stay in one place. This dwelling place of God with man was portable. It was designed, remember, to be erected and brought down and moved where God would have Israel go. It was portable. Thus, God's presence was with Israel wherever they went. And we can't lose this point because it is so key, even in the construction, God was with his people always. God was with his people always. And fifthly, I would submit to you from this text this morning, Westmount, and what we could argue is one of the most noteworthy aspects here is the connection to the first tabernacle. I pray you've seen it not just in service, but in the text already. The creation of each and the similarities in the accounts from Genesis 1 to Exodus 39 is just so hard to miss. Let's look more closely then. Let's just zone in now and think more deeply about this important parallel. Look at verse 32. It says, All the work of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was finished. I want you to look at that word finished. We've commented already on it. Finished, or we could say completed. That word means to come to an end and to be complete. It's a very holistic word. Important word in the original. That word actually not only appears here in Exodus. It's in its original form, in its root form. It appears in Genesis 2, which we read this morning, which says, Thus the heavens and the earth were what? Finished. That's Kalah in verse 1 of chapter 2. And then again you see Kalah. And on the seventh day, God finished his work. Same word connecting the two. Along with that, look at verse 43 of our text. 
It says Moses what? Saw all the work. The work was finished, and you have one seeing the finished work. Moses saw all the work. The idea is that Moses looked, he surveyed out and over what? Completion. Creation, if you will. God threw the Israelites here. Moses saw, and this word is raha, he saw the work. Again, the exact same idea. In fact, looking at grammatical constructions this week, it's remarkable how similar they are, these accounts. Same idea in Genesis, as God looks on the work. Genesis 1.31, listen, And God saw, Raha, everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Finally, look at the end of verse 43. After inspection, what? Then Moses blessed them. Then Moses blessed them. The seal of the finished work is what? Blessing. The cap to the Lord's creation, blessing. After the creation of animals of the sea and sky, Genesis 1.22, the text says, and God blessed them. After the creation of man and woman, Genesis 1.28 says, and God blessed them. And after six the six days of the Lord's creation, after all the work is done, God not only rested on the seventh day, it is finished, but he blessed it, Genesis 2, verse 3. As blessing followed that creation work, that tabernacle creation in the beginning, so too here, Moses then, after the work is done and the site survey is complete, he blessed them. Them, by the way, presumably the workers. Team Bezalel, but even more, all Israel, all those contributing, all of those spirit-filled, the craftsmen, the ability to do God's work, all blessed upon completion. And let's make sure we consider that divine seal of tabernacle inspection here. Again, blessing. What that blessing was, we are not told here. However, in the book of Numbers, we do have a few overlaps to Exodus. So it's good for us to dig a little deeper and see some of those overlaps. Let's turn to Numbers 6. Let's turn to Numbers 6. This particular time in Israel's history, you get glimpses both in Exodus, at the end of Exodus, and throughout Numbers, actually, the opening chapters of Numbers. Again, you have... You can put chronologies together when you put those two books together, those chapters. And as we come to this portion in Numbers, chapter 7 is actually, interestingly enough, going to outline the consecration of the tabernacle that's just been put up, which we are actually going to see in Exodus shortly. But what's interesting here is just before that consecration is a blessing. So we might start to put the two together. So let's look at this here. We're going to pick up this blessing, very familiar to some of you, at the end of chapter 6, just before the consecration. Here's the blessing. Verse 22, chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. 
Nothing else, we learn something, beloved, do we not, about blessing here. From God, this text, through Moses, look at it, to Aaron and his sons and for the people. Note that connectivity. Number one, blessing is associated, look at verse 24, with what? Being kept by God. This is protection. Two, blessing is associated, verse 25, with favor and grace. This is preference. And three, blessing is associated, verse 26, with God lifting his face. Look at this. Lifting his countenance towards. And this is peace. Now, what we need to see here, and we don't want to miss this, this, of course, says nothing of what? Promise. This is, pro- this is blessing, not promise. This says nothing of promise because promise would be very different. I cannot underscore this enough as we think about the modern church that we're in. Blessing and promise are different. Blessing, we're going to look at in a moment again more here, but promise, as we've been studying on Wednesday nights, is that not true? Promise is very different. Very, very different. This here, blessing, especially in the context of number six, and as we'll see in Exodus 39, is divine disposition. Do you see that? This is divine disposition. Blessing is the desire for good favor on another. Numbers here may suggest to us that the blessing upon tabernacle completion, the blessing Moses declared at the end of chapter 39, if we make that inference that there's overlap here, even we can turn back there now, that blessing was the declaration of completion and more was in fact divine blessing from God. We can rightly see that in the text. And let's stop and think on that for a moment, the principle of blessing here. Let's put these together. Again, blessing something we need to redeem in our day. Israel received instructions, and they what? Obeyed them. They obeyed. And Israel did not just obey, but here it is. They obeyed precisely. Have we not seen that? The precision of their obedience And what followed, not just obedience, but precise obedience, blessing. The blessing that follows obeying what God says. That principle is seen elsewhere. The psalmist knew this. The saints of old, like King David, understood this blessing. Jeremy, this morning downstairs, took us to Psalm 119.56. It says this, this blessing has fallen to me. So what's the blessing, David? That I have kept your precepts. More obedience. That's the blessing. The blessing is, and by the way, not only is it to keep obeying, in context, those of us that know Psalm 119, is a love and a joy, and immediately in context, there are a comfort in God's law. That's the blessing. A disposition that we would have toward the law. God has it toward the law. The blessing is that we would have such a disposition toward the law. Not look at it like a burden, but look at it like a joy, like Psalm 119. Even more, we would say, especially as you consider the psalmist in Psalm 119 and other passages as we looked at this morning, this is nothing material, at least in Psalm 119, 
And here I would submit to you, Exodus 39, number 6, material or physical in view. So often, this is where we get confused. We think blessing is physical. Thus, we must understand blessing rightly and biblically. I so appreciate Jeremy going to this this morning. Can God bless us materially? Well, sure, in one sense, he can. One of the things I appreciated this morning is his emphasis on that was for a time in Israel. Deuteronomy 28, there was material blessings. And, beloved, let's be clear. God can and does show favor in a very material way, in a very physical way. That's for sure. But that is not the overarching. That's a derivative of what blessing really is. Let's not confuse, here it is, blessing and provision. Our God provides and how, what is the most tangible way that he provides physically? Let's not conflate the two. Blessing and provision are different. Provision can flow from blessing. The blessing of God and the blessing in view in number 6 in Exodus 39 is divine desire, divine countenance. It is a divine disposition that looks favorably on one. It is godly inclination towards. This is big, beloved. It's so much bigger than a good or a thing. Let's not cheapen blessing to that. Blessing is having the divine face turned to you. Do you see how much more important that is? To have the godly countenance shine on you. Not a good or a thing. Even more, this is favor dispensed to the heart. Not necessarily to the hands and feet. This is favor given to the heart because the heart is where what? Obedience resides. Is that not true? In the wake of Saul being cursed, again, we looked at this this morning for those downstairs, for his disobedient sacrifice, 1 Samuel 15, 22 says, Behold, to obey is better than what? Sacrifice. Hence, that is where blessing is. Primarily, listen, it is not in outward acts, material things, Or family lineage even. None of that. Our Lord affirmed this, by the way. One day while he was teaching, he was approached by a woman. Do you remember this encounter in Luke 11, verses 27-28? She wanted to tie blessing, like many of us do, to what? Not only the physical, she wanted to tie blessing to lineage. It's amazing how much I've been hearing off and on about all that's going on in England with the royal family in 70 years, I believe it is. She's in. And is it, am I the only one? The incredible fuss over the monarchy there. It's absolutely astonishing. And I don't want to belittle that. I don't know the queen, like many of you don't either. But here it is the fuss and fret and attention to lineage, to blood, physical blood line. Listen to what Jesus says in the wake of that. To a woman that says, lineage must mean everything. What does she say to Jesus? Luke 11, a woman in the crowd raised her voice. She's emphatic here and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. There it is. That woman, that line is the blessing. And what does Jesus say? But he said, blessed rather are those who what? Hear the word of God and keep it. Hear the word of God and keep it. Just blows up the sensibility of lineage and blessing, does it not? No, blessing is always, 
See it, please, folks. Always a result of obedience. Blessing is what flows from obeying God. Of course, that's precisely what we see in this inspection in Exodus 39. God, through Moses, looks on the completed work. He surveys, he sees it, and hence he blesses it. He sees it completed, obediently, fully, precisely. And that's the fruit of inspection here at the completion of the Lord's creation. So we've seen the tabernacle instructions, construction, and here inspection. Now all that remains practically, and you know what it is, is to assemble and establish it. That's it. That's all that's left. And our second point then, the installation. Look at chapter 30, or 40, I'm sorry, verse 1, the installation. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Now look at that again. We receive a time marker here. Now at first, it may seem to be just giving a date, right? It just may seem to be saying that. On the first day of the first month, so the beginning of the Hebrew year, which of course, the Hebrew calendar in the spring, the Passover, you would think, okay, it's simply saying that. But let's peek ahead for a moment. Look at verse 17. Scroll all the way down to 17. We'll come back to the intervening verses in a moment. Verse 17 says this, In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Yes, the tabernacle was pitched at the beginning of the year. That's the time of the year's pitch. But don't miss this. That year was the second year for Israel after Egypt. There's your time. In Exodus 12, we learn that the first Passover night, this, we learn, verse 12 in Exodus 12, this month shall be for you what? The beginning of months, it shall be the first month of the year for you. Calendar reset, calendar begin that day of Passover. That's the day of deliverance for Egypt. Thus, if this is the second year, according to chapter 40, that the tabernacle is erected, It has now been one full year for Israel since the deliverance from Egypt. Do you see that? All the events we've covered, Westmount, over the past few months, we have looked at year one for Israel after their deliverance. And it's been quite a year, has it not? Starting with a Red Sea parting, wilderness grumbling and supernatural provision, then a stop at Mount Sinai, and then the law. Delivered via two mountaintop trips by Moses. And then, of course, in between that was the golden calf incident. Then the reception of the instructions, and then the contribution and the construction, all of that in only their first year in the wilderness. And here as year two begins, they're ready to erect and consecrate and install this tabernacle. They are now ready. So let's look at the first stage of installation. Let's begin in verse 3. And you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. I want you to notice in these verses, let's look at them. 
we have really the first full sense of location, do we not? We've had the tabernacle pieces, and there's been hints at where they reside, but here you have it coming together fully. It would not be unlike, right? You have pieces of your home, and, and here is that final stage of installing yourself in your new home, and you're telling the movers what? That goes here. That precisely goes there. This is where everything is set up. It's not unlike that. And God has not surprising, not surprising, specific instructions for all, all the pieces are located. I mean, we've said this so much, but one more reminder. He doesn't say, put them wherever you like. The ark, look at it, resides alone in the middle behind the veil, verse 3. The table, the lampstand, and the incense altar in the outer tent section, which is veiled as well, verses 4 to 5. The altar of burnt offering, noted verse 6, before the door of the tabernacle. So it's not in the tabernacle. It would be outside it in the court. Along with, verse 7, the bronze basin between the tent and the altar of burnt offering. So in the courtyard, but between the two. Then, of course, the courtyard, verse 8, surrounding all of it. Very precise. And again, we need to comment, exact placements matter to God. And we should not be surprised here. God's precision, as we know, has been on display through this entire section. And after location instructions, Yahweh then delivers consecration instructions. Much of this, again, we've seen with the priests already in chapter 29. This will be familiar to you. But here, Israel is presented with consecration details for all the pieces as well. This is not just the priests now. This is everything needs to be consecrated upon this installation. And this is, as you think about royal families, as you think about important things and certainly sacred things, this is indeed the stuff of installation, is it not? It's a ceremony. God will now have everything set apart. It's been made. It's been located. And now it needs to be set apart. Look at verse 9. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the old altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing oil shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. The anointing oil, you see that in verse 9, is called for. And here it is not just for priestly consecration. That's the key we don't want to miss here. It is indeed for that, verses 12 to 15. It is indeed for the priest. But in verses 9 to 11, we see it for anointing, as we mentioned, all the tabernacle pieces. All of the pieces that have been constructed, inspected, and located. All of those are to be anointed with the anointing oil. Nothing is left out. Look again at verse 9. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate all its furniture. Why? Why are you to do that, Moses? 
so that it may become holy. Remember, so that furniture may become set apart. It's not ordinary furniture. So that it may become furniture not only that's set apart, but fully devoted to the service of the Lord. Sacred furniture indeed. We're reminded here of what we learned back in chapter 29. If you recall, that was the chapter where God delivered the instructions for priestly consecration. And then we studied, remember back then, what anointing was and why anointing was so important. And it's necessary, Westmount, to be reminded of that here as it's instructed again. By the way, these instructions appear two times. When you think about priestly anointing, especially before fulfillment. So this is very important to the Lord. Recall our survey of the significance of anointing in Scripture. The anointing for holy purposes is seen in other offices, not just the priesthood, remember, but also the consecration of kings. Do you remember David was consecrated? 1 Samuel 16. Remember the consecration of prophets, Elisha, in 1 Kings 19? Anointing, by the way, not just an Old Testament concept. Recall what is said of you and me, saints, in the New Testament. The Apostle John, in his first letter, says to the church, 1 John 2.20 says what? You have been anointed, past tense, by the Holy One. An anointing, not with a substance, but anointing by way of what? A son. The Holy One, Jesus Christ, Acts 3.14, who is also the Anointed One. Recall the word for anoint in the Old Testament is Meshach, the root word for Messiah. And thus Messiah means one anointed, the Anointed One. That's what Messiah means. This anointing in Exodus then, this consecration of the tabernacle again, and here it is, we've said this throughout our study, this anointing in ancient Israel is what? A glimpse, a glimpse of that anointing, a glimpse of the substantial anointing that would come from another tabernacle, tabernacle who is the Christ, the coming great high priest, the Messiah. Beloved, and we said this before, Christ is the consecration for God's people today. Christ is your consecration today. In Him, in Christ, we have an anointing, and only in Christ. In Christ, in Him, we are called, set apart, and made holy by no other means of anointing. Only in Christ. One more section to cover here with regards to this installation. Look with me at verse 16. Verse 16. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. You see that expression there. We commented on how it appears seven times in chapter 39. Here you need to know it appears another seven times in chapter 40. That is 14 times as we draw to a close this tabernacle. Again, to emphasize each and every time, as the Lord commanded, so it was done. As the Lord commanded, so it was done. And here the fulfillment reminder comes as the tabernacle is being erected. Let's read of this final phase of the tabernacle's becoming. Continue in verse 18. 
Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Here in these closing verses, the entire structure then comes together. See it. This is completed, inspected pieces, now placed and fully installed. Look at it. This is tabernacle. Verse 18, set on frames, poles, and pillars. This is the tent raised. This is the testimony, the law, placed within the ark, and the ark placed within the most holy place. This is veil hung in place between the most holy place and the holy place. This is the holy place and all its furnishings placed what? As the Lord commanded Moses. This is the courtyard set up, complete with the installation of the bronze altar. Now with the ceremonial first sacrifices, look at it, of the burnt and grain offerings. Look at verse 29. They're burning. We've already moved into action. They're burning. With that in the courtyard, this is the bronze basin. And look at verse 31. Now filled with water. And it too now in action as Aaron and his sons now, verse 32, look at it, now actually washing. We have moved, in fact, from installation to action. And so it begins. In Westmount, this is completion of the Lord's creation. Stated so simply, but so finally at the end of verse 33. So Moses finished the work. That's it. So Moses finished the work. This is a fitting closing statement to this installation here, this work, this creation, because it points us back again to the first creation. And just consider that again. In light of this completion, I want you to hear the original creation again. Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3, upon that finished work, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The finished work there, the first tabernacle, 
and of course the finished work here in Exodus. Connects us, reminds us about that garden tabernacle where the presence of God, remember there, dwelt with man. Walking in the garden, do you remember? We got that in Genesis 3. Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Imagine being in God's presence like that. That was the Lord's creation then, the tabernacle at creation. This in ancient Israel was the Lord's creation for them, the tabernacle here, as we've seen in Exodus. But we need to ask Westmount as we close this piece, as we see these created tabernacles, what of a tabernacle that was not created? What will we say of that? What of a tabernacle that need not be built, need not be made, and here, most importantly, what of a tabernacle that cannot perish? Church, as we close our time here for Israel in the book of Exodus, we must consider the tabernacle again that was to come, the tabernacle of God, Jesus Christ, the man who was God, the Word who was God, as John 1, 14 tells us of him, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Yes, that is not, let's be clear, that is not the Lord's creation. He was begotten, not made. But that is, Indeed, the Son is the Lord's coming. That is God himself in flesh, the eternal God, the eternal Son of God come down to be with his own. This is not God meeting us in a garden or in a tent. No, Christian, it is no longer that. This is God meeting us where? In his Son, in his son. This is God meeting us in bodily tabernacles. 1 Corinthians 1, 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? The Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, indwells the believer. This absolutely blows up our sense of how it was portable in the Old Testament, doesn't it? It means, beloved, this is both terrifying and comforting, terrifying and comforting. If you're in Christ today, you can't get away from the presence of God. A terror and a comfort. You can't get away from the presence of God. He is always with you and he will never leave you. The presence of God, the tabernacle your body, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, indwells the believer, not because of your work, not because of your deeds, not because of the sacrifices that you made, maybe this morning, and certainly not because of your family line. No, God takes up residence in you, believer, in this age. Why? Only because of the Son, the Christ. Through Christ and only through Christ, the tabernacle of God is how we enter into God's presence. There's no other way. The road back to Eden, listen, the road back to that garden, the road back to God's presence is only through Jesus. There is no other way to experience God's presence. Not just here, but for eternity. Remember, if the garden and the tent were where heaven and earth meet, and they are, or they were, and they both have perished today out of sight and out of access, 
Then what of a tabernacle that does not perish, but grants access today? John 17, that grants eternity right now. What of Christ, the divine presence who faces no threat of revoke or expiration? What of Christ, beloved, in him you enter into God's presence now and forever? And saints, you think about God's presence, that presence to be in God's presence is glory. And glory is all that remains in this book and study. That's it. Glory. Next week, we will, God willing, see glory come. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, thank you as we draw this study to a close. Thank you for the blessing that it has been to have your face shine upon it for us. And Lord, we pray that we would take all that we have learned, and most especially today as we think about instruction and fulfillment, Lord, that we would walk out obedient to your glory. God, help us to do that, Lord, for the fame of your name, for your glory and your glory alone, we pray. Amen.